Well, good morning and welcome to our church family. It's been uh, great to be able to have some vacation and now it's good to get back. And uh, traditionally, this first uh, week after Labor Day is a, a week or Sunday that we try to uh, address a little bit more of who we are, what our core values are, what we stand for. And, and so this morning, in addition to introducing the sermon series that we're going to be getting into this fall, uh, I'd like to also begin by just talking a little bit about White Ridge Baptist Church. And if you were to ask the question, what is it that we are all about? Uh, we would summarize that by, by answering that we're about making and nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships. And we've uh, worked on defining what those healthy relationships are or how they exist. And uh, our first one, as you can see on the PowerPoint here, has to do with an intimate relationship with God through Christ. We believe that, that God has made himself known and that there's a, a possibility of a calling, in fact, of, of an intimate walk with God, knowing who God is, the eternal God, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. And so everything we do is, is built on top of that. And uh, being a disciple or a follower uh, begins with knowing that that through Christ I can have my sins forgiven and I can be in relationship with God. Nothing between me and the Heavenly Father because my sin has been taken care of by His Son, Jesus. And then building on that, we have uh, four other relationships that we believe are the context of where disciples are nurtured. This, uh, the next one is loving relationships with our own families. You don't need to live on planet Earth very long to know that... Uh, a lot of the problems that exist are existing because they begin in dysfunctional or problems with families. And so we believe that's the place to begin, that uh, there needs to be loving relationships in our families. And so our programs and our, our efforts are made to try and nurture that in family relationships. Thirdly, we have authentic relationships with one another in the church family. And uh, I, want, I might mention in passing that when we worked on these five core value statements a few years ago, we intentionally chose the adjectives that we have chosen. And authentic we chose because it is what we want to define our fellowship as a church family. There is something that is naturally uh, opposed to being authentic when we get together. We can easily come to uh, church with our masks on, and we can easily um, hide from each other. And of course, on a Sunday morning, it's not an opportunity to get to know each other very deeply, but we do work on getting to know one another in other friendship spaces, in life groups, and so on. And so authenticity is where we believe we grow. And, and uh, as John Stott said, we fellowship best in the areas of our weakness. A fourth area is caring relationships with our neighborhoods. We are a congregation of various neighborhoods we represent, and so we believe that in the sovereignty of God, he, he put us, even before we knew the neighborhood we were moving into, He placed us and called us there because He wants uh, us to be His people in His world and so to influence our neighbors for Jesus. And He also has something from them to influence us in a good way for and if we need to, in order to find that, we need to, to get to know them and care. 
And then finally, we believe in meaningful relationships with people from other cultures. It has not uh, escaped our attention that, that we live in a province, Manitoba, that receives more immigrants from around the world per capita than any other province in Canada. And so we believe that God is bringing many cultures, many peoples to us. Some of them are strong Christians, and they are helping disciple Canada. And others of them are from other religions and backgrounds, and they are coming here because God wants us to influence them. And so as a church, we want to be conscious of that. And when we add the word meaningful to that, we mean that these are relationships that matter. Um, God is writing the nations on our hearts, and so whether it's through our relationship with the Korean church that meets in this building, or whether it's through English conversation circles, or whether it's through mission trips, or whatever it may be, we believe that God is growing us in this area. So these are the five uh, core values we, we define. They're all defined in terms of relationship. We believe that it's in the context of healthy relationships that disciples grow, that people grow closer to Christ. But we really haven't, in doing so, uh, defining those hasn't really addressed what does a mature or growing disciple of Jesus Christ look like. And uh, Pastor Doug, who is in charge of, of uh, relationally based discipleship, he has been working with a team on defining that. How do we approach making disciples of Christ on earth? And uh, we are in the process of wanting to display more of that to you this fall. And it has to do with going from the infancy of our faith in Christ to maturity and actual Christ-likeness. It has, from grow, go, it has to do with growing in character to the point where we have real integrity. It has to do with community growing into real koinonia. It has to do with acts of service becoming a lifestyle of servanthood. It has to do with being gracious and, gra- and full of gratitude to living a life of praise. It has to do with individual attempts at witnessing our faith to actually having a fruitful life in, in witnessing in Jesus Christ. And so um, we, we want to define that more and more. And if you get to know our life groups and our life path, our approach to discipleship, you will hear more about these kinds of things. So we're all about nurturing uh, the body of Christ on earth, nurturing followers of Jesus Christ through healthy relationships. Well, we want to begin this morning our study in the, gospel, in the book of Joshua, and we're going to be carrying on in the winter with the book of Ephesians. And you can see from the banners that are at the front of the sanctuary that um, these books have something to do with each other, that even as Joshua 1.3 says, I will give you every place where you set your foot. Uh, similarly, Ephesians 1.3 says, we're blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And there is a physical spiritual correlation between those two ideas. And uh, we're going to be talking about that this year. Let me explain briefly reasons why we chose to study these two books of the Bible this year. First of all, we just finished the Gospel of Mark a month ago, and we wanted to study an Old Testament book. And since we studied Exodus, the book of Exodus, uh, two or three years ago, 
we thought that this would be a good way to finish the story, the narrative of the children of Israel. Because as you know, the book of Exodus accounts for how God encounters His people as slaves in Egypt and how He gets them out of Egypt through His redemption. And He gets them out of Egypt, but, but they're still in the, pro- in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. And so one of the uh, reasons why we wanted to go through Joshua is because we, we wanted to finish the story. We got them out, but we haven't got them in. And that's a very clear picture of the Christian, the nation of Israel and their history is designed by God to be a theological statement about the Christian journey individually, you and I. And so even as we are redeemed through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and even as He brings us out of slavery to sin uh, into a new walk with Him, unfortunately, so often we find ourselves in that place of having been saved and yet not experiencing all the promises of God and the blessings through Jesus Christ. So we've, we are like the Israelites in the wilderness who are wandering and not experiencing the promises of God. Alan Redpath has, has written that theologically speaking, Ephesians is therefore to the New Testament what Joshua is to the Old Testament. And so the promise of God given to Joshua and Israel is that he will give them every place where they set their foot because the promise was made hundreds of years before to Abram. And similarly, Ephesians uh, tells us, Paul tells us in Ephesians, that the believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And just as the whole land of Canaan had been given and promised to Abraham, his descendants were not enjoying the benefits of that land. And similarly, in Christ, we as his followers are given every spiritual blessing And we need, in the words of Joshua, to put our spiritual feet on the promises that we have through Christ and claim or possess that. And so that is the correlation between Joshua and Ephesians. Just as Israel had got out of slavery in Egypt but had not gotten into the promised land, so also many believers can be delivered from sin but not fully be enjoying what God has for them in Jesus We'll be talking a lot about that, and that will be a primary point of application, both in the study on Joshua and in Ephesians. Today, I'd like to introduce the book of Joshua and um, then conclude by uh, sharing how you can be a part of this study in the book of Joshua and in Ephesians as well all all year long. What you have before you in, in our PowerPoint is a picture of how the Old Testament is structured historically. Traditionally, Christians put Joshua among the 12 historical books of the Old Testament. And um, so it follows the first five books of the Bible. And yet the Jewish uh, canon of Scripture places Joshua under a category known as the former prophets. And so it's interesting that both historically and prophetically, Uh, Joshua really is an incredibly important book of transition. And it's a a transition because it's bridging concepts and history that are important for the sake of building our faith. Francis Schaeffer has written that what makes the book of Joshua important is that it stands as a bridge, a link between the Pentateuch and the rest of Scripture. And the three transitions that I want to mention just briefly 
is, first of all, a transition from being a nomadic people in the desert to being a settled people in the land of Canaan. That's what we see in Joshua. They, they go from being this nomadic people in Israel, in uh, wilderness, to a settled people in Canaan. Secondly, there's a transition from having Moses be uh, the principal leader to having Joshua be the principal leader. And then thirdly, the, there's a transition from Israel being a people that received primary direction through a mediator-type leader, Moses, to being a people who received direction from God through the written Scriptures. And so that is becoming, that also becomes primary. In uh, Numbers chapter 33, verse 2, it says in the Scriptures that Moses recorded the stages of the journey of Israel out of Egypt and toward Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 9, it says that Moses wrote down the law and gave it to the priests. In verse 26, he tells them, make sure that it's kept with the Ark of the Covenant. You see, what was happening was that God was making sure that the, the, the history of Israel and the law of God was being recorded, written down and put in a book so that, that the people of God would have something to lead them by when Moses had died. That was the question. On the day after Moses died, how would Israel know the leading of God? Because there was never going to be another leader like Israel, we, we read in, in Deuteronomy. And so we see that going, out, uh, going on throughout the, the Pentateuch and then into the book of Joshua, this careful recording. The very first time, in fact, that we read about Joshua, we read in Exodus chapter 17 when the battle of the Amalekites, that God said to Moses in verse 14, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Another translation says, write this as something to be remembered in the book. And it's a definite article, the book. There was a book being compiled throughout that time in Israel's history. And that book is what we've come to be seen as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so God was preparing Israel for that time when Moses would no longer be with them. I want to just uh, mention briefly uh, an experience that Pat and I had in, in Buenos Aires when we were traveling this summer and uh, we were on a train from Buenos Aires to a place called Tigre, just outside of the city, about an, a couple-hour train ride. And for about an hour long, uh, I and another Bolivian pastor that was with us spoke to a, a, a couple of Mormon missionaries, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they gave us both a, a Book of Mormon, and then we began to discuss. And, and uh, as we were discussing, I began to... Um, put together again and sharpen my understanding of what they believe, that, that just about 200 years ago, this man named Joseph Smith received an angelic visitation of an angel, I think his name was Moroni, and that this angel gave him the golden tablets of, of ancient writings and that these writings he was given the ability to translate into English for the early Americas, and then this was the most recent revelation from God after the Bible. And it was for the sake of the people in the Americas to have. And 
then, of course, these tablets were taken back to heaven, as they say, and we are left with the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and so on. And the, the thing that disturbed me was how very convinced these two young men were of the, the validity of the, these documents and their teachings. And they likened it to our Bible, who, which we have in, in the 66 books of our Bible and how we received them. And I, I want to say, no, there's, there's no, no similarity at all, because in, this, in the case of our scriptures, we have uh, such incredible uh, documentation. We have, in the case of the New Testament, we have over 5,000 fragments of, of the, the Gospels and of the Epistles and of all the writings in the New Testament, different fragments, par- portions of books or letters, and sometimes entire books and letters. And, and, and they date back, of course, thousands of years, not, uh, not just a, a couple of hundred years. And we have these to look, to look to and to compare. And textual criticism verifies what the original autographs would have likely said. And in the old case of the Old Testament as well, even going back much farther, we have so many different manuscripts and fragments that te- put together these, these incredible pieces of Scripture and, and we have a, a group of maybe 40-some authors writing over some four or 5,000 years, and the unity of all these 66 books converge upon the person of the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, God who came to earth. And so when I, when I hear someone talking about how uh, the Book of Mormon or something like that is likened to the Scriptures, I get so uh, upset because... Because I think that to the untrained eye, an average person in our country perhaps looking at this, the two uh, likens them to each other. But I want to cry out and say, no, it's not at all the same. There is, there is historicity, there is veracity, there is, there is a reasonable faith why we build our life on what this book, the Bible, teaches us. And there are many others that are believing other gospels that are deceived and that should not be believed. Well, with that um, rather long detour, I want to jump into looking at what it is that we have to study this year. And um, it's an interesting task to try and put together the book of Joshua in context. The story certainly does not begin with Joshua chapter 1, verse 1, nor even the first mention of the name Joshua in the Bible, which is Exodus chapter 17, the the battle against the Amalekites. To understand the book of Joshua, we must go back, in fact, to Genesis chapter 12, which is the call of Abraham. And the the map that you have uh, before you here is a a map about about that time. We see Egypt, we see the Mediterranean Sea, we see Canaan, the land of Israel, and we see what's called Mesopotamia which is really where Abraham and his forefathers grew and, and lived, the Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, same area, Mesopotamia, present-day uh, Iran. And Abraham is given a revelation of God. He's told to leave his country and his household and to go to the land that God would show him. And so he leaves with his wife Sarah. And when they, when they stop going and, and land where they're supposed to land, God uh, finds them in the land of Canaan. And uh, there God reconfirms the covenant that he makes with Abraham. And he says that to your offspring, 
Genesis 15, 18, to your offspring, I will give this land. And uh, God confirms that by even giving the actual boundaries of the promised land. And so on this second map, you can see if we take the boundaries from Genesis 15 and Joshua 1 and other passages and overlay them upon our present world map, we can see that it encompasses, the ancient boundaries encompass the southern part of present-day Syria, uh, the country of Lebanon, Israel, part of Iraq, Jordan, and a little bit of Egypt. And of course, uh, we don't need to say that there are so many ancient cultures and religions that are laying claim to this land. It's no wonder that there's ongoing strife. It must have required a lot of faith for Abraham to believe God in this. Because at the time that God spoke to Abraham, he not only didn't own any land, but he also didn't have any offspring that would inherit the land if, even if he did have the land. It's not until Genesis 21, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, that Isaac, the son of promise, is born. And the only land that Abraham ever owned is the burial plot that he bought from a Hittite leader in Canaan so that he could bury his wife Sarah. We read that in Genesis 23. So Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. Uh, they have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob inherits the promise and marries Rachel. And they have 12 sons. One of them, his name is Joseph, the man with the many-colored coat. He's the favorite of his father, and his brothers despise him for that. And so one day they sell him into slavery, and they tell their father that he was killed by wild animals. Joseph ends up by God's providence in Egypt, and again, through the providence of God, he rises from being a prisoner in jail to becoming favored among Pharaoh's court. And during this time, there is a famine in the entire land, and yet Egypt flourishes because God warns the Pharaoh through dreams that are interpreted by Joseph that he needs to prepare for the famine. There was going to be seven years of bounty followed by seven years of famine. Egypt stockpiles food for seven years, and then while other countries around them are dying, they are ready for this drought. And in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph's brothers make a trip to Egypt in search of food, and in a miraculous providence, they are reunited with their lost brother. Joseph forgives his brothers for uh, sinning against him, and he has his entire family move to Egypt where they're given good, rich farmland in the land of Goshen. And there, Joseph and his brothers finish their days on earth. But before Genesis ends, we read in the last chapters that Joseph reminds his family that the promise God made to their forefather Abraham is to give them the promised land uh, to his offspring. And so then we turn, we close the pages of Genesis and we open the pages of Exodus. And incredibly, over 400 years have transpired. The descendants of Jacob have become numerous. And another Pharaoh is in charge now that does not know Joseph and actually feels threatened by the Israelites. And so he subjects them to forced labor. For hundreds of years, the Israelites were among the slaves of Egypt, among other peoples that built famous cities like Python and Ramses and the pyramids. And so God heard the cry of his people, and in this time he sent a baby boy to be born among Israel that would be raised in Pharaoh's court and yet would be a Hebrew. His name was Moses. And the book of Exodus really is describing the preparation of Moses as the leader of Israel and shows how God performs an incredible deliverance, forcing Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. 
And so God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. After the exodus from Egypt, all of the history found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of that takes place during the 40 years of wilderness wandering between the time of leaving Egypt and entering Canaan. And yet because of not trusting God, all of the adults who left Egypt uh, died in the wilderness except for two, Joshua and Caleb. We read in Numbers chapter 13, there were, these were the two men willing to trust God when they spied out the land. The ten gave in to fear, believing that there were too powerful a people. And the two, Joshua and Caleb, gave way to faith. And so after 40 years had passed, and after the death of Moses, we finally see that God is ready to lead his people into the promised land. And he tells Joshua in chapter 1, verse 2, it's time to go in to possess the land that was promised six or seven hundred years earlier to Abraham. And so in summary, we see that Genesis is a, a book that is the birth of Israel as a nation. Exodus is a book that describes how God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Leviticus is a book where Israel is taught how to worship God. Numbers, where Israel's faith is tested in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is a book that is the second law given to Israel before inheriting the promised land. And then Joshua follows up and completes the story where Israel actually takes possession of the promised land. Now, I recognize that's a pretty fast history to put Joshua in context. I also recognize that the study of Joshua has its many challenges, especially when we being read from a, a 21st century perspective. If we do not read Joshua in the light of its ancient context, in light of holy and historical purposes of God, then we'll definitely stumble over many passages. One could pick up the book of Joshua today and think it has nothing to teach us because of its apparent ethnic cleansing and military violence and holy war bloodshed. And that would be a grave mistake for it is incredibly full of meaning for those who want to walk with God today. It has many lessons. And the world of Joshua, we need to know, is, is over 3,000 years ago, not at all like our world. A vast cultural difference at the time, God was sanctioning a widespread entrance into the land of Canaan in order to fulfill His promise to Abraham, but also because many of the peoples of that land needed to be judged for detestable practices of the Canaanites in that time. And so, back in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, we, we read about that uh, very idea coming to pass when God told Abraham that he would judge the wicked peoples in Canaan and when the Amorite sin had reached its full measure. So, so God was going to wait until the sin had fully flourished before he would judge. And again, it was in his forbearance, perhaps we could say, that he was waiting to see if people might repent. Deuteronomy 20 verse 18 clearly states that God's purpose was to keep Israel from being defiled by the idolatrous practices of Canaan, and that's why he called his people to kill many of the enemies. When the Scriptures describe these detestable practices of Canaan, uh, and it's all throughout the Pentateuch and into Joshua, it is not just referring to the bowing down to a statue. Uh, the Canaanites practiced 
sorcery and witchcraft, consulting the dead, child sacrifice, sexual perversions, other perverted practices, and God did not want his people to adopt these practices. We must remember as well that in the midst of these kinds of judgments and in the midst of this bloodshed, over and over again, we read about foreigners and aliens that lived among Israel. We read about, for example, in chapter 2 of Joshua, this first person that we're, we're introduced to that's not a non-Israelite is a prostitute named Rahab. And, and she is given, shown mercy by God because she evidenced faith in God and helped. And so we see that in the midst of, of widespread judgment that God was giving to these peoples, we see also that God was choosing those that were, um, were, were uh, putting faith in Him and, and was being merciful. I was speaking with Alf Bell in between the services and he was saying that what we see in the land of Canaan was really a rampant corporate addiction. And it made sense to me when I heard that term, corporate addiction. When, when all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but when over time, the norm becomes so perverse, the norm becomes so degrading in society that God finally needs to judge that society based on His holy standards. Um, friends, we, we need to move on, and, and um, we will talk certainly much more about some of the tough questions that we encounter in the book of Joshua. And uh, I want to suffice it to say today that the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, them alone forever eliminate what might be considered, what uh, some have considered the Joshua option of violence being done in the name of God. We cannot appeal to the book of Joshua and justify some holy cause or war or violence. Jesus has made that clear in, in the Gospels. And so um, when we study through Joshua, we need to understand exactly what God was doing in that time, in that place through His people. Well, I want to switch gears and conclude this message by pointing you in the direction of how you can become involved in the Sunday morning messages and, um, and receive more through that. I hope you know by now that uh, having heard us delve into some of the introductory material of Joshua and its, and its uh, kind of uh, difficulties, that we're committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. It doesn't matter if some of the scriptures are not fully understandable or it doesn't matter if there's still mysteries and questions that we, we find. We're committed to preaching through the scriptures book by book because that's the way God gave us the scriptures historically. And so in spite of the uncomfortable discussions and uh, sometimes having to hold things lightly because we don't know dogmatically, uh, we want to continue to expose the word of God. And that is the approach we use. Expository preaching has been defined as not a, uh, a method, but rather a philosophy in which the main idea of the text is the main basis for the main idea of the sermon. And so we're not talking about imposing onto the text what other people or that we might think. We're talking about exposing, drawing out from the Scriptures what the actual meaning is, and guided by proper 
uh, interpretive skills. We, we, we look at what did the author intend the original listeners or recipients to receive, and then we take that and we unpack it to see what does it have to say, therefore, to us. And so um, that's how we want to grow as a church. We want to grow because we believe that the Scriptures are the primary nutrients of our faith. And so uh, that's the question that we answer is how, how is it that we could help you as an individual Christian grow? And um, Pastor Doug has prepared this uh, statement here where if you listen to a sermon on a Sunday morning, you'll get something like 5% retention uh, in the average person if you just listen to the sermon. If you take notes, then you're going to retain more because you're actually more involved in engaged with the sermon by taking notes. And starting next Sunday, every sermon will have uh, uh, some notes that you can fill in as you go. It'll be found in your bulletin. But if you take it further, we want to say that if you study the Scripture along with us through the week, in your private time, in your family time, if you join a life group or some other study, then you, you can actually grow even deeper and have more retention, more application and then if you were to join in a discussion with other people who are also studying the book of Joshua and Ephesians, then you will even get more out of the messages than that. And so that is our desire, that as a church we have one unified direction. We're all on the same page. All of the life groups or small groups that we have in our church are encouraged to study uh, the, the messages that we're, we're preaching week by week. And um, together, that helps us grow. We have something as a common place to fellowship in and around. And uh, in that regard, we see Sunday morning as distinct from the kinds of life groups that we have. On Sunday morning, our primary focus is to get to know Christ through Scripture. And a secondary focus is getting to know each other getting to know Christ through each other, because we don't have a lot of time to interact. We have a little bit of time before or after the service to maybe share, but, but mostly it's about worshiping the Lord and, and hearing His Word. But that's reversed on, on our life groups when we have the goal, the primary focus being getting to know Christ through and with each other. And the secondary focus of our life groups is getting to know Christ through Scripture. We don't apologize for that. In fact, Pat and I have our own experience in the last four years in our church family here. Uh, we have had book studies and Bible studies in the past where the, the primary part of the evening was all about the Scripture study and the book study, and a very small part was actually sh- sharing together, praying together, and fellowshipping together. And uh, uh, last year, when we got into more of a philosophy of life groups, we reversed that. We, we arrive at our life group, we have tea and coffee, and we share, and then we, we start into sharing with each other about how the week's going and prayer requests and uh, areas of need. We try to be vulnerable with each other as well. And uh, then we share and we pray together. And by the time that is done, often we have three-quarters of the evening complete, and we have maybe a half an hour for a Bible focus. But we've already all been listening to the Scriptures. We've already heard the sermon from Sunday. 
We've already perhaps read the passage a few times, studied the, the binder or the notes online. And so we come together with some reflection questions and we're already uh, at, at a further stage of application and of discussion. And sometimes that conversation is very rich. And so uh, we're trying to deepen our application of Scripture by this means. George Barna did a study, as he's known to do in, in various ways, and he's uh, got a book published called Growing True Disciples. He says, we are good at, re- at uh, relating to other believers, but not very good at having faith-based relationships in which our goal is to help one another mature in Christ. And I think that all of us can relate to that, that quote. We all have relationships with other Christians, but how often are we really intentional about discussing matters that are really pertinent to our faith? Too often we talk about how the family's doing or the sports that we're interested in or music or we're talking about work or other things, but we're not really sharpening one another in the faith. And so life groups is an opportunity and other opportunities that we produce are, are given to us to, to create space for intentional sharing with one another. Now, we're excited about being able to offer you both online, week by week, as well as um, in a binder form, all of the notes for the book of Joshua, the study that we're doing this fall. And uh, there's binders available at the Information Center in the FOI for just $5.00. It's uh, um, complete with notes and reflection questions and commentary and maps and everything for our study. And on a weekly basis, after the sermon is preached, on the Monday, the notes from that week will be put on our webpage. And so if you choose to uh, do that instead, you can, you can study it that way. Uh, and we have received uh, permission from the different publishing organizations to be able to have the uh, Holman Christian Study Bible, the New Life Application Bible, and the other commentaries and, and study helps. We've got permission to use them week by week on our webpage and to print the portions for our study notes. And so it's a great blessing. And um, I, I would encourage you to either go online week by week and follow us and look at some of the reflection questions for your own study and then growth or as well get involved in a life group. If you're interested in pursuing more of what a life group looks like and it's kind of new to you, there's pamphlets in the information center. There's also uh, uh, an opportunity for you to, if you're new, to get to know more about our church in general, including life groups, at our orientation supper. It's October the 6th. Uh, 5.30 to 7.30, there's a sign-up in the Information Center, and uh, that would give you an opportunity to know more about our church, what we believe, as well as how we approach making and nurturing disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, I want to conclude by sharing Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, and uh, the Scripture says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Um, Next week, as we get into the chapter 1 of Joshua, we'll be studying that text more. But let let me conclude by saying simply that it is our earnest desire and prayer that as we seek to be diligent 
in the scriptures that we will reap a great benefit, that we will grow spiritually. Uh, in Bolivia, when we lived there, we had a willow tree in our yard, and I had to, with the boys, we had to cut and trim the branches every year right back to the, 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 the nubs of the, of the, the stumps of the, the branches because there was such an incredible growth from, from that tree every year, and it would hang down and cover grasses and our grass and flower beds and so on. And it always served to me as an illustration of what one year's growth looks like if we invest fruitfully. And I want to say to you that, that we have a, a wonderful open year standing before us. Here we are in September. And when we come to June or July next, next summer, and we will have studied Joshua and Ephesians, my desire and our desire would be that, that we invest well enough and we apply and pray well enough so that God actually transforms our lives and our lifestyles and everything about us so that we really are more nurtured followers of Jesus Christ and that one year's growth in our lives could be incredible. Would you pray along with me and along with us that that would be what God does in our midst this year. And um, thank you so much for, for listening. God bless you.